Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Um, As I think the entire world is well aware, we have now eclipsed the one-year mark of the sort of when the coronavirus pandemic really took hold in one the United year. States. One one big year. We did it, gang. We did it because that means that means something. Uh, yeah. Um, I was thinking about this because the the thing that made me realize just how serious it was all getting in the beginning was the frantic text message chain this group had about whether or not to come in and record oh, on yeah. a Thursday. Well, yeah. that makes sense, though, because it, you know, the, the listeners don't get to see what our podcast studio looked like, but it's a tiny <laughs> glass room. Yeah, uh, you know, really yeah. at the at the peak of, of us being all very frightened of bio of contamination. Yeah. We really didn't want to pile in there. No. no, no. I mean, it's it's the opposite of all things social distancing. So we made the right call, gang, to uh, not yeah. have a sh- have a, a recording session that week. Um, proud that we've come such a long way to do it all from our remote locations. But I do miss being in that tiny studio. Yeah, I I do too. Hopefully we'll get hopefully we'll get back there sooner rather than later. I wanted to address there was something that was circulating sort of on the take sphere. Uh, there were a couple of think pieces uh, about like. People likened it to like when prisoners serve a long term and then they fear their release date. Some people were like, I'm a little I I have like trepidation about getting back out into the world. And well, I was I'm, just like, yeah, go ahead. I'm honestly worried to go back to the office because I definitely had granola bars in my desk. So <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure what's go- what what kind of science project is happening. At, uh, in, uh, I in Flatiron right now. But uh, yeah, but good, it good can't point. be good. Yeah, I just want to say, I, I have, I mean, as soon as I get the vaccine, of course, I mean, I know there are various unknowns associated with that. I do not share that trepidation. I'm very excited to get back to work uh, and get back out in the world. The weather is turning, which, of course, kind of accelerates this a little bit. But anyway, um, you know, I don't know, a little state of play there at the one year mark. Uh, hopefully things are looking up. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, a year. Um, but I mean, we have a good show this week. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we were just talking about you know, March of last year, but um, I know you guys uh, are going to sit down with Cara Bayless, talk about, uh, you know, one of the other major events that that happened last year. Yeah, we're going to we're going to get her take on the beginning of the trial of the of Officer Chauvin, who's accused of the murder of George Floyd. Um, It's a it's obviously all eyes are on that trial. So we really want to kind of give a almost a table setter to explain what's happened in the early days, what to look out for in the weeks to come as it continues. Um, we're really excited about that talk. Yeah. And there's already been a lot of pre-trial um, intrigue that uh, Kara is going to walk us through uh, lots of interesting stuff and obviously a very, uh, very serious topic. We do have some interesting news stories to get to first though. I thought it would be good to start with um, really noteworthy development in the, what I consider to be sort of like a secondary legal struggle in the aftermath of the NFL's landmark concussion settlement, which I think most people heard about a few years ago. There was this landmark settlement um, that dealt with uh, that 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 settled a class action from former NFL players accusing the league of turning a blind eye to uh, the the effects of uh, repeated blows to the head. Um, there has been this sort of wellspring of secondary disputes over how the payouts from that settlement get administered to the former players. And there have been, 
there have been struggles um, of for players to get those payouts based on just like a mix of procedural delays. There's like been predatory lenders involved, accusations of fraud, just kind of a general unwieldiness about this massive pot of money and like a lack of transparency about how it gets paid out. But we're, what we're talking about today is um, sort of a particularly ugly fight that grew out of this that came into the spotlight this week as a judge, federal judge in Pennsylvania, ordered ordered the NFL to basically address claims that the league um, was basically making it more difficult for black players to receive payouts um, by factoring race into their cognitive function test scores, the 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 tests, the the cognitive tests that, that they administer um to ascertain, you know, sort of brain injuries and head injuries to the former players. And so it's it's very charged, obviously, and there were some sort of noteworthy developments here. Yeah, that sounds pretty terrible, but before we get into those allegations, I think I need a little reset on just how the settlement was supposed to work and, and what it was all about. Yeah, this was this was the talk of the class action bar several years ago when it got struck. Basically, like I say, the NFL agreed to pay up to a billion dollars to a class of uh, thousands of former players who, like like I say, said um, the NFL was negligent, inattentive to the very urgent concerns um, that are raised by repeated blows to the head that are sort of intrinsic to the game, lingering health effects from sustaining many concussions that they just turned a blind eye to for for years, for decades. Now, it was a huge number. It was a billion-dollar settlement. And so in that way, it was it was it's a huge achievement. But even at the time, it was seen as kind of a win for the league when you consider the size of the class. I think it's up to about 20,000 former players now. And the amount that they, they, they might have been on the hook for several billions of dollars if it ever went to trial. But right. anyway, there's... Um, there are a lot of different claims that players can make to receive payouts, but basically what you need to know, just to boil it down a little bit, is that they all involve some kind of adjudication of the severity of a player's injuries, head injuries, and the lingering effects that flowed from them, um, which is where we get into um, these like extremely unpleasant allegations raised by two former players, both played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Najee Davenport and Kevin Henry, uh, last August, which uh, sort of teased us up here. Yeah, as you mentioned, anytime you get into these kind of questions, you, they are extremely fraught. And yeah. um, but tell us what you know what this lawsuit exactly is claiming here. Yeah, so there were two suits filed last August where these two former players, Davenport and Henry, they accused the league of using what's called race norming to um, adjust the cognitive tests of former black players um, uh, or black former players uh, when uh, they are deciding if they are eligible for settlement payouts. So effectively what they say, it's we, we're delving into the weeds of like cognitive science here, but what you need to know is that um, the suits basically said that the league assumed that black players were starting out with a lower cognitive function than white players when calculating how much impairment they have suffered. So the tests that are being conducted on the players is the same across whoever else. But the suit says that the league basically uses these racial benchmarks to put black players behind the eight ball by, by saying like, if you assume that they start with a lower cognitive function, 
then any decline they have isn't doesn't read as so severe. That doesn't even get into the baseline assumption that black people are intellectually inferior to white people, which is what they're claiming here. I gotta um, say, like before you even explain anything else, yeah. I was just shocked about the the this being um at all something we're talking about in the year 2021 i was so surprised to even see it so yeah yeah i mean how did how did a judge react to that claim yeah so like i said these 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 suits were filed in august and this week they were quickly resolved but in sort of a half measure kind of way so the federal judge who was overseeing the settlement dismissed the cases. Um, so the cases are ha- have been tossed out. I want to be clear on that. We're talking about the severity of the allegations. These have now been tossed out. Um, but mostly on procedural grounds, she framed them uh, as a, quote, improper collateral attack on the settlement itself. Because you have to remember, we're in the settlement phase now. And the judge seemed reluctant to sort of open up a new entire thread of litigation that could undermine the payment of the settlement to things that might not be related to this claim and other things like that. So even though the suits are dismissed, she still, the the judge still expressed concerns about the racial discrimination claim. She took them at face value and said, if true, this is a huge problem. Um, And so uh, Davenport and Henry are appealing the dismissal. We should say that. But in the meantime, the judge, whilst while faced while you know faced with the facts of these claims, ordered the league to ordered the league to work with plaintiffs' counsel through a mediator um, to sort of get to the bottom of these alleged race norming claims and resolve it not through litigation but through mediation. Just sort of a this is a this is a secondary issue about how the settlement gets paid out, and you should you should talk over the validity of these claims through mediation and try and land at some at some resolution. This sort of feels like one of those moments when you lose an appellate case, but you get a really helpful dissent from one of the judges that sort of lays bit, yeah. out a yeah. uh, you know a road where uh, a roadmap for how you can continue to you know uh, appeal or or you know to get to where you're trying to get to. Um, so what what exactly is going to take place now now that it's gone to that mediator? Yeah, there it's. It's like I say, it's taking place between the the NFL and the lead uh, plaintiff's counsel for the settlement, who is a man named Chris Seeger. And he is the lead counsel for all these this class of like 20,000 players who are trying to get payouts from the settlement. Um, But this this development about this, this this referral to mediation has kind of brought to the surface a little bit of tension within the class, within the people who are trying to get these settlement payouts. Um, about there's a little bit of there's there's been some criticism lobbed at Seeger from the wives of now deceased players um, who have questioned sort of how hard he's willing to push the league in settlement sort of kerfuffles that pop up. Of course, he is a lawyer on behalf of 20,000 clients. We understand that this is inherently sort of uh, an interest balancing type of thing. Um but what you have now is him going back to the table with the league to talk about this. And a woman named uh, Cyril Smith is the lawyer for Davenport and Henry, the two former players who um, who uh, lodged these suits that are now dismissed. And she articulated her concerns with this sort of middle-of-the-road mediation track in a statement after the, after the cases were dismissed. She said, quote, 
We are deeply concerned that the court's proposed solution is to order the very parties who created this discriminatory system to negotiate a fix. The class of black former players whom we represent must have a seat at the table and a transparent process so that we are not back in the same place four years from now dealing with another fatally flawed settlement. So I think it's we we don't even have to say uh, that that the allegations of a racial bias in a settlement like this are huge. Um, uh, the, the the implications are huge when you consider the the league's racial demographics. Many of the players and former players are black. Uh, just to to get some stats out of the way here, there's been more than eight hundred million dollars paid out to players so far under the settlement, including more than three hundred million dollars for dementia claims, um, which are the which are the claims that Davenport and Henry were making. Um, but for context. More than two-thirds of dementia claims have just been full-out rejected. Um, and while we can't tie the rejections to the allegations here yet, I think that the the claims brought by these two players that are now going to mediation kind of reveal the depth of skepticism around what was supposed to be a kind of landmark legal remedy in this case. For our second story this week, we are going to pivot to... Uh you know, a, a little bit of a lighter story uh, dealing with financial crimes and uh, antivirus software. And um, we're talking about uh, John McAfee, who uh, everyone probably knows the name from the, the McAfee antivirus software that's probably on their terrible old computer. The man who uh, keeps popping up <laughs> in the lower right corner of my screen. Uh, yes, yes. A perpetual update machine. Um, <laughs> uh, so John McAfee, who was the pioneer and uh, of this software and the founder of the company that now bears his name, but he has no affiliation to that company anymore. Um, he was charged this week with using social media to carry out this massive financial fraud scheme involving cryptocurrency. Uh, what I think is very interesting about this case is that it's, you know, it, it is full of cutting edge buzzwords like <laughs> cryptocurrency and social media and all this stuff. But it's really just kind of a a digital, you know, uh, it's it's sort of boring old crimes wrapped in, you know, digital clothing. So I think it's just interesting to look at it from that perspective. I mean, I think it's pretty funny that the guy whose name is synonymous with keeping you safe on the internet uh, allegedly was doing a lot of bad stuff on the internet. Um, yeah, I mean, well, there, there were those people said for years that the virus software companies were making viruses themselves. I mean, not that that is that issue here, but, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thanks for clearing that up. Uh, good, good disclaimer there. Um, okay, so John McAfee is into crypto now. What else is new? Uh, everybody's doing it. Um, what is uh, what is being alleged, though? Like you say, I mean, this is a fairly straightforward uh, alleged scheme, but there's like a little more sort of uh, uh, digital veneer on it. So, like, what's uh, what's up here? Yeah, I mean, there's two sort of big buckets of claims here in uh, these criminal cases, which were filed last week in the the Southern District of New York. Um, one is is a, a so-called pump and dump scheme which you've probably heard before it's um uh it's it's a you know a f fairly well-known financial crime uh prosecutors say that mcafee and his um his private security guard a guy named jimmy gale watson who was uh, also indicted last week that they bought up a bunch of cryptocurrency at at fairly cheap rates and then they used mcafee's huge twitter following to pump up the value of this stock told everyone or of this uh this cryptocurrency yeah. told everyone to buy it got everyone very excited about it 
when the price of the cryptocurrency then rose, McAfee and Watson dumped their coins for uh, for what prosecutors say was about two million dollars in profits. Yeah, that's um, a classic one. That's as as clean cut allegations as you can get for a pump and dump scheme. One of the very classics of the genre of financial crimes. So the, yeah. the, the the old pump and dump. Yes, right. And uh, and cr- crypto is not immune. You can do it with that too. Yeah. Last week we were talking about Don and Doff cases. This week we're talking about right. pump and dump. <laughs> it's just hit, playing all the hits. Um, yes. So the other scheme was sort of related but different. Um, uh, prosecutors say that McAfee used his Twitter to to tout these um, initial coin offerings or ICOs. It's sort of like an IPO for cryptocurrency um, from a bunch of different uh, companies that were offering these things. Doing that sort of in and of itself would not be uh, illegal, but for the fact that prosecutors say McAfee and Watson received more than $11 million in undisclosed compensation to do this and didn't, you know, didn't tell anyone that they were doing this and that they had an interest in what mm-hmm. they were saying. They were both basically just saying, you know, go out and buy this. It's great without telling people that they had received $11 million for doing so. Here's the quote from the acting U.S. attorney for the Southern District, uh, Audrey Strauss, quote, McAfee and Watson exploited a widely used social media platform and enthusiasm among investors in the emerging cryptocurrency market to make millions through lies and deception. The defendants allegedly used McAfee's Twitter account to publish messages to hundreds of thousands of his Twitter followers touting various cryptocurrencies through false and misleading statements to conceal their true self-interested motives. I don't want to get too far afield here uh, and the, the, the it's this is an emergent sort of financial area and I'm sure that, you know, litigators and or rather prosecutors are paying close attention to it uh i don't want to lose sight of the fact that this guy watson was his uh security guard his body man that's kind of like humorous to me if true he's just <laughs> like he he's with him all the time he understands what's going on uh just a funny little character wrinkle there i mean for me I, what i like the most about this story is that it feels like um this is bad for mcafee but it's it's almost like a coming out for cryptocurrency like we can do normal <laughs> financial crimes too like use us for that well you mentioned that uh it's bad for mcafee and it's not the first thing that's bad for mcafee um yeah. he has had a recent run of difficulties when it uh w- with the law um in uh october he was charged with tax evasion for failing to report what prosecutors said was millions of dollars in income from consulting work, from speaking engagements. Uh, he uh, allegedly sold the rights to his life story for a documentary. And uh, you've probably guessed uh, promoting cryptocurrencies was also involved. <laughs> this there. guy, this guy can't get enough. Allegedly he just <laughs> loves promoting cryptocurrencies. Um, Listen. <laughs> yes. uh, so before that, in July 2019, McAfee was this is sort of a strange story. This is according to the AP. McAfee was detained by authorities in the Dominican Republic for allegedly entering the country on a yacht that was carrying high caliber weapons, ammunition and military style gear. Uh, He was released after a few days. Um, But yeah, sort of wacky, wacky situation. Um, He's now in Spain uh, because that's where he was arrested last year on tax of on the tax evasion charges. Um, the U.S. is trying to get him extradited. I don't know what the exact details of the extradition treaty are with Spain, I mean, but uh, that is that process is uh, 
underway. Bill, Usually not a problem said, with Europe, but yeah. Well, go ahead. Bill, when you said that he had sold his, you know, rights, his life rights to a documentary, at first I was like, oh, that sounds boring. But then you now told me about um, a yacht with weapons and, and being detained overseas doing- and all these things. So maybe that would be a good documentary. He's doing Miami Vice cosplaying. Uh, yes. Right. <laughs> right. Um, um, any other last things we should know about this case and, and what's going on with McAfee? Yeah, as I mentioned up top, I just thought this case was interesting, uh, as we've alluded to a couple times. These aren't new crimes. Like, you're not allowed to tell a bunch of people to, you know, buy a stock and then not disclose that you were paid $11 million to do so. And you're not allowed to, like, you know, pump artificially and inf- then- Yeah, like exactly. artificially inflate the stock and then sell it. Yeah. Um, it really just, it, it, it comes, I mean, it's, it's the, you know, it's crypto, it's social media, it's digital stuff, but it really comes down to behavior that would have been illegal in, in any era. So here's the quote from uh, the FBI's assistant director. McAfee and Watson used social media to perpetrate an age old pump and dump scheme. When engaging in illegal activity, simply finding new ways to carry out old tricks won't produce different results. This week, jury selection began in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd. It may be the most closely watched murder trial in decades. So what do you need to know as it gets underway? We're joined by Law 360's Kara Bayless, who's covering the trial to give us all the details. Welcome back to the show, Kara. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, um, I mean, I want to dig into the trial and sort of get everybody oriented about what they should be watching. But before we start, I think we should really just do a very quick recap about what we know about the death of George Floyd. Um, What happened and what's the case we're talking about here? Sure. Uh, So back in May, uh, Minneapolis police uh, tried to arrest George Floyd uh, after responding to a call that someone had used a counterfeit $20 bill at a convenience store. Um, And things quickly escalated. Uh, Four officers ended up uh, responding to the scene, three pinned Floyd down, uh, stomach down on the street. Um, And one of them, Derek Chauvin, uh, presses his knee into Floyd's neck. Um, And this goes on for eight or nine minutes. Uh, Floyd really seems to be in distress. Um, He can't, he keeps saying that he can't breathe. At one point he says that they're killing him. Uh, He calls out for his mother. Uh, He eventually passes out and uh, Chauvin continues to keep his knee on his neck. Uh, Bystanders who are on the sidewalk are very upset. They're taping it on their cell phones. They're telling Chauvin to get off of Floyd. uh, and uh, eventually one of the other officers checks Floyd's pulse and says he, he can't find one. Um, so uh, it's worth noting that uh, Chauvin is white um, and George Floyd was black. Uh, so that image of a white officer, you know, pressing into the neck of a black man um, while he says he can't breathe uh, kind of rekindled uh, nationwide uh, racial protests. Uh, and we saw those go continue for a lot of the summer. Um, uh, and so Chauvin is now facing uh, murder charges. Uh, jury selection, like you said, is underway now. Um, and his trial is scheduled to begin at the end of the month. Uh, and the other three officers on the scene, they'll be tried together later this summer. Um, 
we'll get into the particulars of the charges and uh, the the legal issues at play. Like you say, this obviously touched off a huge, uh, you know, months long, m- months worth of protests uh, across the nation, many of which continue to this day. Um, a racial reckoning broader, even a re- you know, even even beyond the 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 question of police brutality. Before we get into all that, let's talk about some of the particulars um, about the. The, the the case before us today, specifically some of the people. Um, let's let's talk about the judge. I know this is taking place in a uh, in what would normally be a fairly obscure court in Minnesota. Uh, you're covering it from the comfort of your home via via <laughs> the internet. Um, but uh, let's talk about the judge. Sure. Uh, so the judge is Pete Cahill. Um, he's been on the bench since uh, 2007. Uh, he was re- appointed by a Republican governor. Um, he worked before he became a judge as a public defender and then a oh. prosecutor. Um, so he's been on both sides of the criminal aisle. Uh, and he actually was uh, chief deputy uh, in Hennepin County, which is Minneapolis, mm-hmm. um, uh, to the Hennepin County Attorney's Office when Amy Klobuchar, who's now a U.S. Uh, senator, yeah. was the prosecutor. Um so, you know, again, he's uh, our colleague, Jack Karp, uh, reported on this. He's very familiar with criminal law. And, you know, so far in this case, he's kind of been an interesting character. He allowed cameras in the courtroom. Oh, OK. Um, so that's how that's the reason I'm able to beam in along with a lot of press nationwide. Um, uh, at the same time, he's really taking great pains to keep jurors anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he's also reversed himself a couple times in the case. He issued a gag order saying attorneys couldn't talk to the press. Uh, then attorneys complained he reversed. Uh, he said he would try all four defendants together, then realized he couldn't accommodate all of them in the courtroom with COVID precautions. Um, all the other officers you're saying. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so with all their attorneys, he realized he just couldn't do it mm-hmm. during COVID. Um, but both sides had asked him to delay the trial. Uh, and instead of doing that, he decided to sever the case, which the prosecution wasn't happy about. It's easier for them to try everyone together. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about um, those attorneys that are involved, because while the judge himself might not be an, an, a national name, we do have some pretty prominent attorneys uh, working on this case. So tell us about both sides of that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, originally, it was just a local prosecutor, um, but then the attorney general's uh, office took over and uh, the state attorney general's yes. office took over. Uh, and uh, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison was actually in the courtroom the other day. Um, uh, his One of his deputy AGs um, is sort of in charge uh uh, that's uh, Matthew Frank. Um, he's leading the case. The, the prosecution has a lot of uh, outside help from private attorneys who are working on it pro bono. So there are two um, local attorneys, um, Steve, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, Steve Splesher. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he's been handling the, the voir dire. Uh, Jerry Blackwell's another local attorney who's argued uh, on several motions in limine. Um, but then there's also a team from Hogan Lovell's uh, and it's being led by uh, Neil Kachal, uh, who's the uh, former acting solicitor yeah. general of the United States, uh, and he's a partner at Hogan Levels now. Uh, and he's helped especially with some of the appeals in the case. 
Yeah, he's a really known um, entity in the legal world. I mean, he's argued at the Supreme Court. He's argued on um, all kinds of important cases. So Former people, pro se guest. Uh, former pro se guest. That's right. Had a great conversation <laughs> with him. So, yeah, I think um, it just shows how much attention is on this case as sort of representative of this racial justice movement that pretty high powered attorneys are willing to, to give time to, to, to be a part of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of uh, startling to see that on the other side, there's only this one attorney. Yeah, yeah, he's he's just a local criminal defense attorney. Um, and, you know, it's been long days uh, in jury selection so far, eight to five. Uh, and he's been he's been doing it all. Uh, so uh, pretty sparse uh, team over there. But we should <laughs> talk about jury selection. I think um, the the main question that emerges when the whole idea is having sort of a neutral jury, a jury of your peers to try your case with a with a fresh, uh, a blank slate, if you will, I would have to think that's almost impossible in a case of this magnitude. I mean, if you you know behind the election and the coronavirus pandemic, I, this was like I don't know the the most singular news event of the past year. Um, uh, what's going on? Uh, I, I know that there are a lot like the, the, the voir dire in this is like very closely watched and you, uh, anybody who's interested in this, uh, procedural, but very interesting part of the trial process should definitely follow Kara on Twitter. I know you've been like, like live tweeting dismissals and questions and recusals and things like that. Uh, what do we need to know about jury selection at this point? Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, everybody's seen at least a clip of that, uh, bystander video. Yeah. Um, uh, and so the judge and attorneys have been very careful to say to potential jurors, like, we know you may have seen it um, and maybe you've even formed opinions about it. Mm-hmm. But what's really important is, can you put those opinions aside? Yeah. And, uh, something that keeps coming up is this presumption of innocence, right, mm-hmm. that uh, Chauvin is entitled to. So they keep asking about that. Um, all the jurors were sent this massive 14 page questionnaire that asks, uh, you know, things like not only have you seen the video, but how many times have you seen the video? Uh, yeah, asks, uh, I, yeah, go <laughs> ahead. I, 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 I thought that was interesting. You wrote about that. Everybody else wrote about that. It was like, it almost seems like the, the asking the question about if you've seen the video is something is kind of a foregone conclusion. <laughs> and there's more focus on how many times you saw it and how it made you feel and all that. Um, but um, what have we, what, what, what else have we seen if there, is there weeding through the pool here? Uh, they're asking about opinions about Black Lives Matter, yeah. uh, about Blue Lives Matter. Sure. Uh, in jury selection, it seems, um, you know, they're they're interviewing. It's an interesting process because they're interviewing these jurors one at a time and then striking as they go. Uh, yeah. So uh, they have to make very ca- careful calculations about the risks. Um, and so it seems like a quick way to get struck by uh, the prosecutors is to say that all lives matter when asked about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I mean, they're trying to sort of suss out uh, where folks are coming from. Uh, The jury questionnaire also asks about uh, people's um, opinions of uh, Derek Chauvin and George Floyd. And Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have negative impressions of Derek Chauvin uh, after seeing that video. Um, One woman said she was neutral on both. And so prosecutors were kind of trying to draw out her feelings about things. And it was interesting because they started asking her about her feelings about COVID restrictions. Oh, wow. There's like yeah. proxy culture war battles going on. That's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So um, one thing that I know you've written about, especially leading into the start of this jury selection was um, 
some concern that that court watchers have about the racial makeup of the jury. Um, yeah. has, what's happened with that so far? Um, and what are those concerns exactly? I mean, is there a possibility we would end up with an all white jury, for example? Uh, no, not at this point. Um, so we're speaking on Friday morning. Yes. Uh, they've sat six of 14 jurors, right? 12 and two alternates. Um, And half of them are white and half of them are people of color. But that doesn't mean that race hasn't come up already. Uh, The state has already uh, made two Batson challenges. Um, So Batson versus Kentucky, a 1986 Supreme Court case that said that you you can use peremptory strikes, right? The the strikes for jury selection. Mm -hmm. Right. Where you, you don't have to say a reason why. Uh, but if they seem to be, if there seems to be a pattern of racially motivated strikes, uh, that's illegal. Um, and so the state has has uh, made two bats and challenges, but the court uh, denied both of them. But okay. they're still on the record. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's important now to to. So you said there there's six of fourteen jurors uh, seated, and they will continue to do that even after, even as people are listening to this, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about the legal sort of questions at play. Uh, it's a it's a murder trial, um, and that seems straightforward. But I know that there are different iterations of murder charges that defendants can face, and things like that. And that has been the subject of a lot of pretrial intrigue. Um, what does each side have to prove at this point, and what are we looking at in terms of the questions that the jury is going to have to answer um, when when they eventually get seated? Right. Yeah. Well, the burden of Proof is on um, the prosecution. Right. So, uh, and they have three charges that they've brought. Um, so, uh, the first is second degree uh, manslaughter. Yeah. Um, and so, for that, the state needs to prove uh, culpable negligence. Uh, yeah. So, that Chauvin uh, took an unreasonable risk by pinning uh, George Floyd's neck for that, uh, pinning it at all and pinning it for that long. For that long a time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, uh, there's a second degree murder charge. And uh, for that, um, that that carries a sentence of, I think, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that, they don't have to show intent to kill, but they do have to show that uh, Chauvin um, uh, was committing another felony uh, in the course of killing Mr. Floyd. And so in that case, they're going to try and prove assault. Yeah. So yeah, he was, he was being, yeah, he was assaulting him and in the process he died. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that could be very difficult to prove because uh, Chauvin um, was an on duty, on duty officer at the time right. making an arrest. Um, and the standard for what is an appropriate use of force is extremely high uh, under the Supreme court's uh Graham decision, uh, they just have to say sort of what a reasonable officer on the scene would have done. Yes. Um, and the last charge uh, is third degree murder, which has been bouncing around. It was kind of unclear whether it was on the table or not until Thursday morning. Yeah. Um, and so that carries a, a lesser sentence than second degree, obviously. It's 25 years. Um, and they have to prove that uh, Chauvin was uh, committing an eminently dangerous act uh, and also that he had a depraved mind. It seems like we're going to get into lots of conversations about things that the whole nation's been talking about to, to prove out those charges. I mean, the idea of what a reasonable officer would do and that kind of thing um, has really been talked about a lot already. And now we're going to see it in the actual court case. Yeah. 
So I think, um, you know, this is a good way to orient us to where we are. You said we're about halfway through jury selection, right? So mm-hmm. we still got a ways to go with that. Yeah. Um, but maybe you can just give us sort of the, the primer on what to watch next. Um, what can we expect coming up? How long do you think the rest of jury selection will take? And then when does the trial, uh, the merits part of the trial actually kick off? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so they have scheduled three weeks for jury selection, but uh, I doubt it'll take that long. You know, if in four days they sat six jurors, I would be surprised if it takes, I think it will probably take another week. Um, okay. But uh, trial is set to begin March 29th um, uh, and it's expected to last about four weeks. Uh, and then it's a question of deliberations, right? I mean, um, uh It's funny, one of the jurors who was seated, he's supposed to get married May 1st. Um, The pressure is on for him uh, to to come to a a verdict by then. Um, But the jurors will be sequestered in a hotel uh, during deliberation. So I guess he won't be uh, under any direct pressure from his fiance. (laughs) But that's that's the general schedule. So when the trial eventually does get underway, you know, you said it'll be there. There, there are cameras in the courtroom. I'm sure there will be a lot of uh, eyeballs on it. I mean, what are you going to be looking for? I mean, this is there's there's a loaded sort of conversation around a lot of these issues about police brutality and racial uh, inequality and things like that. But we're talking about a legal proceeding here. I mean, what are you going to be watching as this thing unfolds when it gets underway? I think it'll be interesting to sort of see what comes in uh, in terms of uh, the background of the two main players, you know, um, mm-hmm. sort of a lot has been made about uh, whether George Floyd had uh, drugs in his system when he was arrested, uh, whether uh, Chauvin um, uh, sort of had a, a history of uh, too, using too much force. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting to see how that comes into play. Um, but like you said, I mean, I think anyone who wants to watch this trial can, um, and I think a lot of people will, I think it'll be a, a closely watched trial because I think for a lot of folks, um, even people who, you know, don't have legal backgrounds, I think, um, it's about more than the trial itself. Um, it's about this sort of racial reckoning that's happening in this country, um, You know, I mean, uh, in the state of Minnesota, it's been reported that there's never been a conviction of a white police officer. Um, Mm -hmm. Two years ago, there was a conviction of a police officer who shot someone, but the officer was black and the victim was white. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was sort of a split second decision that was made in that case. That's the Muhammad Noor case. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think with this case, uh, the crime didn't occur in a minute, it occurred in eight minutes and 46 seconds, famously. Uh, yeah. So if Chauvin were to be acquitted after Noor was convicted, I think that we would see uh, a lot of, uh, a great deal of public reaction, not just in uh, Minneapolis, but around the world. Kara, I really appreciate you coming to explain all this. Such high stakes in this one, and I feel like um, I'm better informed to watch the proceedings going forward now that you've been with us. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks a lot for being with me today, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Kara Bayless, and contributing reporters, Zach Zagger, Craig Clough, and Lauren Berg. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so other people can find our show. And if you want to read anything more about what we talked about today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.